So if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're in Luke chapter 12. Uh, Like Sarah said in the video, we're finishing our uh, last message in the Rich Towards God series where we've been looking at our finances and our resources and the things that God's given us through the lens of Jesus' teaching in this passage. Uh, Now, we typically don't talk about money very often at all here. Uh, We don't have a typical offering moment or take up a collection and things like that. So when we make a conscious decision uh, to have a series like this, I think it's a really good opportunity for us to lean in uh, and to adopt a posture of humility and allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to be both a light and a mirror to our lives and revealing the places that we might be blind to or uh, maybe just straight up ignoring. So, uh, But that takes God working and doing that in us. So let's pray and ask Him just to help us in this moment. So Father, we love You. And God, we are so thankful for the way that You provide for us. God, we're thankful for the way that You give us uh, Your Word that is both light and lamp, God, uh, that is a mirror God, that does reveal things in our life, and God, we thank you for the instruction that you give us um, on, God, how to have the best life with you, and God, the way to have wisdom in this world and to navigate things in a way that um, are best for us, but also give you fame, Jesus. And so we pray, um, God, that you would uh, align our hearts with yours in this moment, God, particularly around this topic of our finances and our money and the things that you have given and entrusted to us, God. And so, Father, I just pray that by your Spirit you'd soften us, God, even in my own heart, um, God, that you would really help us to adopt a posture of humility. And God, we need you for that. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you work and would we know, God, that it is uh, your kindness um, that presents this to us. And so, Father, uh, we, we, we trust you and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, one of the things that I always try to share with either uh, teens or young adults even is when I'm talking to them or even when they get moments with their small group leaders, it's, it's a great gift to them um, because they have the opportunity to learn from a guide who has experienced what they will be heading into. They, they have an opportunity who, to hear from someone who's uh, done some things well, uh, not done some things super well, and they have an, a chance to learn from them from someone who has been where they are heading into. It's a chance to kind of vicariously press fast forward on your life uh, and make decisions in the present based on your desired future. So in in Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, habit number two is begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind, meaning start by thinking where you want to end up and orient your life with that kind of direction and that kind of intentionality. Start by thinking, where do I want to end up? And then how do I kind of navigate according to where my desired destination would be? And in Luke 12, Jesus is in essence kind of giving the same instruction to his disciples and to those who's listening in through a a series of really poignant illustrations that we're going to see. And what Jesus is teaching here, he's teaching if you think clearly about the future uh, in, in order to live wisely in the present. So think clearly about your future Be able to see your future clearly in order to live wisely in the present. And and, and let where you want to end up in the future allow you to live wisely in the the present. Now, we've been applying this passage and these principles to our finances, um, but really it, it, it goes broadly to our time, our relationships, our vocations, even our life with God. And we're going to see this morning how thinking clearly about the future will allow us to live wisely in the present. So the passage that Karis just read, we won't uh, reread it, um, but in that passage, it talks about being ready for the master's return. And 
uh, in, the, in the church, in the culture that I kind of grew up, there was a lot of emphasis behind the teaching about the return of Jesus that I, I seemed to be designed to just make you absolutely as anxious as possible. Uh, so a lot of bumper stickers about the rapture, a lot of showing films like A Thief in the Night. I don't know if anybody here had to go through that, right? Um, a lot of talk about being left behind and tortured and graphs and timelines and pictures of politicians next to dragons and it was this or this is. So there was a lot of that. And I don't know that that was particularly helpful at the moment, um, but on the flip side of it, I don't know how often we live with like an earnest expectation and anticipation of the return of Jesus. And so we want to listen to the instruction that Jesus is giving here uh, and allow our kind of brains to frame around that reality. Look at verse 35 in chapter 12. Jesus says this, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Be dressed and ready. What Jesus is saying, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Maintain a posture of readiness. Stay dressed for actions. It, it, it literally means to, to gird up your loins. So in that day, men would wear long flowing robes, which was clearly stylish and extremely comfortable, but it wasn't very good for like fighting or work. And so they would have a, a belt or a rope or something that they would tie around their midsection to kind of pull up their, uh, their long kind of robes so that they could work or they could fight, they could be ready. So what he's saying is he's giving a metaphor for how you should live your life. He's saying, don't live in a constant posture of leisure. Stay in fight mode. Stay ready for action. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I started to play tackle football, and I was uh, kind of quick, so I got to play running back. Uh, but by the time I got to eighth grade, uh, everybody else had grown, and my body missed that memo. So uh, it doesn't matter how quick I was, I was getting clobbered. So I sat the bench a lot in eighth grade. But it was no worries, uh, because I perfected uh, a little game uh, that I called the mouthpiece game. So the mouthpiece, a little plastic thing that you put in, kind of keep your teeth from falling out. Uh, I would see, as I was sitting there on the bench, how many times I could rotate it in my mouth without using my hands. So just kind of how many times I could flip the mouthpiece over, uh, and I actually got pretty good at it. Um, and so one particular game, I'm sitting there, and I was working on a new personal record, uh, and the coach yells out, Artino, you're in, which he never said, and I never heard. Uh, and so I wasn't ready, uh, and I actually spit out my mouthpiece onto the ground, and then I was stuck, because do I pick it up, do I put it, I got to have it, but it's dirty, do I really want to put that in my mouth, now what am I supposed to do? And all of that time, he's like, never mind, you're out. So I lost my opportunity. It's okay, I think I turned out all right, and who knows where that guy is right now. Um, but I think, his loss is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I think we can be the same way with our resources and our finances and our time and our opportunities that God gives us. We can not be paying attention to what is happening in front of us and not stewarding well what we have. And because of that, when there's an opportunity for us to make an impact or for us to make a difference, we'll squander that opportunity because so often we're too self-absorbed or just disengaged with what God might be calling us into. And he says, so stay ready, stay dressed, and also keep your lamps burning. And then in verse 36, he says this, 
Uh, he says, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak." So in those days, when a rich man would go to a wedding, uh, you really didn't know how long he was going to be gone for. Sometimes these weddings, they would last a day. Sometimes it'd be several days. And there's no way for him to communicate back to the house, hey, I'm on my way back, or I'll be back tomorrow, or anything like that. So the servants uh, would want to keep the house ready all the time because they didn't want the master to return to a messy house with all the servants asleep. And so Jesus is saying, we should live like that. Keep the lamps burning, stay dressed, ready for me to return at any hour. And then in the next couple of verses, in 39 and 40, he gives another picture, and he's talking about a, a thief who's kind of breaking in. Now, thieves, as a general rule, don't really schedule their break-ins, um, but if you know a thief is coming sometime during the night, you better stay up all night to be ready for him. And Jesus says, it's the same thing with me. Now, he's, he's not a villain, of course, but he may return when you're not ready. So Jesus gives these kind of three different pictures, and then Peter, as Peter's prone to do, is sitting there, and he's listening, and then he pipes in with this, verse 41. He says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? So he wants to know, is this for the disciples? Is this for the, us who are close followers, or, or is this just for kind of like everybody that you're kind of talking out there? Uh, and it's an important question in the book of Luke. It's a, it's a really big theme of Jesus, the dividing line between those who are followers and those who are not. And you're going to notice in the next few verses that Jesus didn't really answer Peter. He instead just tells another story to help Peter self-diagnose whether or not he's living ready, which is Jesus' answer to him. He, he's saying, Peter, this definitely applies to you as well, because a lot of my so-called followers are going to be unprepared. Look at verse 42. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant who the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But, my, but, but suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both the men and the women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him, and at an hour he's unaware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows." All right, so Jesus gives another picture. He's like, okay, the boss, there's servants who start to act like, I guess the boss is never coming back. And so they, they just start to kind of use all of his stuff and throw a party. You probably never did this when you were in high school, uh, but my, I had some friends who, like, when their parents would go to town, they would throw a party at their house, and everybody would show up, and we would all act like, this is our house, this is our stuff, and we would use their stuff, and it never really ended well. And that's kind of the picture of what Jesus is saying here. Like, you, you, you're having a party on his dime, at his place, drinking his wine, wearing his clothes, even forcing the other servants to tend to their needs and misuse their power against them. But when the master returns, he's going to say, these things aren't yours. I didn't entrust them to you for your personal use. 
In fact, the, the word that Jesus uses there for servant is, is best translated manager or steward. And the steward is not someone who owns the assets, but manages them for someone else. So, so in, the, in these verses, Jesus is giving us four pictures, and they all kind of communicate the same thing. Live ready. Live in anticipation of the master's return. Busy about the work of the master, the ways of the master, stewarding what the master has entrusted you for his purposes. And if you don't live that way, the way that Jesus talks about it makes it feel like the consequences are pretty severe. You get cut into pieces, beaten with several blows, which in the original Greek, all that stuff means that's bad. It's a bad thing to have happen to you. So the person who lives this way demonstrates they are not aligned with the will of the master. They're not submitted to him, so their treatment is the same as those who are not the followers. All right, so I think there's some action items that we can pull out of here, uh, and we'll try to kind of get through that um, real quick. So because Jesus seems to understand that our stuff, particularly our resources, particularly our money, has an effect on us that, in a sense, kind of lulls us to sleep. He, he's telling us you need to stay awake, you need to stay ready, you need to stay dressed, you need to pay attention, because there are things and concerns and cares and stuff of the world that kind of makes us delusional, uh, or at the very least, distracted to eternal realities. And a lot of times, like, our money in particular can make us focus on the temporary and lose sight of what is eternal. So we're going to look at three things uh, that I think we can pull out of this passage. The first is Jesus is encouraging us to stay awake. Stay awake. You see that in verse 37. Stay ready. Stay awake. Uh, you, you can read that as stay active to the task. Uh, so there's two kind of primary things that if you want to know what God is up to in the world, um, he, he answers it with both the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment is found in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, someone says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And so Jesus, it's amazing, he can say anything here, and he kind of distills it down for us. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Everything that you have, Love God with that. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord, your God, with your heart, your soul, your mind, strength, everything that you have. And then love your neighbor the same way like you love yourself. And then the Great Commission, this is what Jesus sends his followers out to do. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So this is the work that God is doing in the world, and this is the work that he has for us as the church. This is how he works in and through the church, to see these two things happen. So when you think in terms of your resources, like your time, your money, even your uh, expertise and the things that you can, your talents and abilities, you have to ask yourself, how much of those things that I've been given do I devote and commit to this work, to the great commandment or the great commission. Here's another thing that this passage points us to. It talks about meeting the physical needs of others. Jesus seems to think that this is really important in this. So in verse 42, he describes the faithful and the wise manager as the one who gives their portion of food at the proper time. So he describes the faithful servant. The faithful servant is the one who uses his resources to make sure that others get fed or have what they need. 
And conversely, he says the unfaithful servants are those who, in verse 45, begin to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. They use what they were given that was designed to bless others, and they use it only for themselves, and they actually mistreat others with the same resources. Now, every time we start to talk about money, or every time we start to talk about finances or resources, we take a pretty common perspective, a pretty common posture, and we say, well, listen, that money is mine. I've earned it. I've worked hard for it, and therefore it's mine, so I can do whatever it is that I want with it. That's a very common perspective, very common posture in our world and in our, our culture. So if I want a bigger house, or I want a better car, I want nicer stuff, I want another experience, it's my, priority, my prerogative because it's mine. I worked for it. I've earned it. But in the Scripture, it doesn't seem like God sees it the same way. Yes, you worked for it, and for sure, God gives us good gifts to enjoy. So having stuff, even having like nice, expensive stuff, is not necessarily a problem. You want a bigger house, you want a better car, you want all those kinds of that's great. It's having that stuff is not necessarily the issue. It's when the stuff has you that it's an issue. And, and, and the way that God sees it, and the way that God describes it in the Scriptures is he says, okay, well, yes, you did earn it, and yes, you did work for it, but who gave you the talent, the ability, and the opportunity to earn what you have earned? Where did that come from? The Apostle Paul uh, writes about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, for who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? What is it that you have in your life to do the things that you do that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as you, though you did not? Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 29, David, the people of Israel, they're raising money and resources to build a temple. And in the process, David prays to God and, uh, after they've been giving. And this is what David says. He makes this very clear. Uh, he says this in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. And then he makes it very, very clear. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So David makes it really simple for everybody who's listening and everybody who's in the room. Everything in heaven and earth belong to God. Wealth and honor come from who? From you, Lord. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. So even the strength or the ability or the talent or the, or the agency that we have to even earn wealth or earn honor comes from God. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? So he's saying even our ability to give back to God comes from God. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Do you understand the kind of the big shift here that David is helping us to see in terms of the stuff that we have, in terms of our resources, in terms of our finances, which really kind of pushes against our individualism, our, our, our autonomy, and our culture, and and, and, you know, well, I worked for it. Success is earned by hard work, and that is true. 
but you have worked hard for what you have with abilities and opportunities and circumstances that God provided. And you could say, well, listen, I have what I have because of what I've done. But had God decided that you were going to be born in Central African Republic or South Sudan, your opportunities might be a lot different than the ones that you have having been born here in the States. Uh, Warren Buffett calls it, you, you won the ovarian lottery because of where you have ended up in the world. And I realize there, there's communities and areas and places that it's very difficult as well in this country as well too. But nothing compared to what people are dealing with in those places. So your abilities and your opportunities and your circumstances are God-given, and if you have more wealth than someone else, ordinarily it's because God allowed for it. So the point is, everything we have is a gift from God. And then the Scripture kind of takes another step as well, because God doesn't give up ownership of something when He gives it. So everything you have is a gift from God, we see that, but everything you have, He's still the ultimate owner of. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's. The, the Bible is so, like, helpful for dull people like me. I was like, well, what part belongs to God and what part belongs to… And the psalmist is like, well, the earth where you live is the Lord's. I was like, ah, okay, well, what else? Everything in it, uh, oh, okay. The world <laughs> and all who live in it. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess there's not a whole lot of wiggle room on what doesn't belong to the Lord. So yes, you have been given it, and yes, you have been given opportunity, and yes, you have been given wealth, or you've been given resources, but you relate to your money the way that a money manager relates to the wealth or the finances of investors or clients, not as an owner, but as a, as a broker. If you're a money manager and the funds grow, you get excited because that does benefit you, but you don't think that it's all yours. You can do whatever you want. There's a level of accountability that comes with that. You, you are invest the wealth of others that is in line with the desires and the purposes of the investors. And if you don't do that, it's called fraud. So God is the great creator and the great investor, and what he's doing in the world is he's created this world to be this interconnected place of peace and harmony. And when God gives you more, he wants you to invest more in what he's doing in the world, the good of others for human flourishing, for the fame of Jesus. And the point is, God's saying, I gave you the ability, I gave you the opportunities to make and to multiply money with the responsibility to use it for my purposes. So don't commandeer it all and turn inward and only think about your own needs and get drunk on the world's pleasures. Don't be asleep to the task. So, so God, this is really important in this passage. God considers us not using our resources to bless and serve others around us as an act of injustice. So when God looks at the way that we use our finances and our resources and even our time and our abilities... And he sees that we're not using them to love others as ourself or to share the, the, the gospel. It's not just like a no harm, no foul. God puts it in the category of, in, of injustice. When, when God rebukes his people, particularly in the Old Testament, it's, it's mostly centered around their idolatry, meaning they've taken gifts that God has given them and those have become the gods that they worship or their lack of care and concern for the poor. Those are the two things that God comes after his people the most. He said, you've been blessed to bless others, and you're not doing that. And there's a rebuke in that. So to live justly is to live awake to God's tasks and to live in such a way where you make your resources and your opportunities, you use them to love your neighbor and to make Jesus known. So you 
have to ask yourself that question. Of the things that I have, of the time that I have, of the money that I have, do they reflect that type of living? Do I, do I use those things for the master's tasks? Do I, use those perp- do I use those things for his purposes? Do I spend those things towards what God desires? So stay awake to what God desires his people to be doing in the world. Okay, the second thing, quickly, is to stay expectant. So stay awake and then stay expectant. Live with a confident expectation of the return of Jesus. The, the, the servants who get in trouble in the story are the ones who are either unsure of the master's return or they forgot about it or they just completely disregard it. And so when you expect the return of Jesus, you are confident in the completion of his plan. You look at everything differently. You, you approach the sacrifices that you have to make in this life differently. You can uh, in, endure suffering and sacrifices different on earth because you understand what is temporary, and you understand how much eternity matters. And and it should shape the way that you and I view our time and view our money, because when we live with just the short, temporal view of life, it's like, okay, I, I have to eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow I die, because this life is all that there is. And our culture puts so much stress and so much pressure and so much anxiety on us with this kind of like YOLO lifestyle. You only live once. And so we feel like, well, if I don't buy that thing now, or if I don't spend now to earn that experience, or if I don't do this thing now, I'll never get an opportunity to do that. But the scripture teaches that what God is doing in the world is a, is a, is a re-genesis, a re-creation of, of the garden. So God is making all things new ultimately. Because right now, every experience, every place that you go, everything that you have, has a curse attached to it. But, but it is not so in the end of the story. What God is doing is he's creating a world where everything will be renewed and everything will be restored, which means in eternity, you'll have all the experiences that you could have here, but without that curse. So for the Christian, the YOLO really doesn't apply because you'll always live forever. Yalf. We can start saying that. Yalf. I mean, that's just fun to say anyway. Yalf. Hashtag Yalf. You'll always live forever. So I don't have to operate in the world with the same kind of anxiety and the same kind of stress. Like, if I don't spend it now, if I don't buy it now, if I don't do it now, I'll never get a chance to go and and do that. The only things in heaven that you won't be able to do will be care for the poor and evangelize. So why not prioritize our time and our resources and our opportunity towards those things? Uh, There's an American missionary, his name was... Uh, Adoniram Judson, and he was one of America's first missionaries to Asia, and he wanted to marry a girl named Anne, and so he wrote a letter to her dad to ask permission if he could uh, marry this, this girl, and this is, this is what he wrote. He said, I have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, which is a great start. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the hardships and the sufferings of this missionary life, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, 
for the sake of the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the lost who were saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. So first of all, dads, you get a letter like that. What you, how are you going to respond to that? Well, her dad said yes, and Anne and Adoniram, Adoniram, I can't say it, they got married, they moved to Burma, and everything that he predicted in that letter came true and worse. So how, how does a dad say yes to that? How did she say yes to that? Because they believed time was short, eternity was real, and they were expectant of the master's return. So the challenge that Jesus is presenting us with, the opportunity that Jesus is presenting us with, live and spend your time and your money and your resources in such a way that only makes sense if you are confidently expecting Jesus to come back. Orient your life in such a way it only makes sense if you are absolutely expectant and certain in the return of Jesus. That's what it means to live ready. So stay awake, stay expectant. Lastly, stay faithful. Um, if this passage and reading this, and even if this series has kind of caused you to check yourself, that's good. It did to me too. It's what it's designed to do. It's designed to make us evaluate how we're living according to the task that God has given us. Um, I mean, to be just quite frank, we live in a place of abundance, and that is God's great gift to us. It's not designed that we should look at this and all of a sudden just feel guilty and not do anything about it. It should conjure up in us a, like a feeling of real responsibility. The very first time I ever went to Africa, went to Ethiopia, uh, I was absolutely struck uh, in, in really a jarring way with seeing just abject poverty. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Um, I mean, we, we drove by uh, the, the city dump, and there were people, like, all over these huge mounds of garbage, and there's children literally eating garbage. It's not, not a metaphor. Like, there was pieces of trash that children were putting in their, in their bodies. And our friend, the, the Ethiopian guide who was kind of with us, he was saying, those people that are all over the, the, the city dump, that's where they live. That's their home. And, and, it, and it didn't make me feel like, oh my gosh, I feel so guilty because I have like a, an actual like house that I live in. But I was struck with, I have been giving much and there is so much that is required of me. Not guilty, but responsible. We need to be aware of the effect that affluence has on us. It, it is God's good gift to us. But we need to be aware of the effect that affluence can have on us, the, the, the curse of prosperity, because it's so easy for us to become so enamored and besotted with the benefits and the pleasures that come from success that we forget why God gave them to us in the first place. C.S. Lewis says, wealth has a way of knitting man's heart to this world. We forget that God gave us what he has for internal investment, not temporary pleasure. And so it's just a really simple question for us to be asking ourselves as we get into passages like this and we really allow the, the Word and, and the Spirit of God to do its work in us. We have to say, okay, if the Master came back today, would He find me using the things that He's given me in a way that honors Him, that is aligned with His desires and His work in the world? 
Am I using my experience? Am I using my expertise? Am I using my talents, my ability, my time, my energy, and my money towards those things? Am I faithfully investing what God has entrusted to me? The point of all this is not just to make us feel bad and be like, oh man, that was a great service. I feel terrible about myself. It's not the point. And, I, and, I, and for most of us, for most of us, we, we're listening to this and we hear this and we're like, okay, I would love to live this way, but I'd love to kind of approach my finances with this kind of perspective. But if it was that easy, I'd already be doing it. We wouldn't even need this message. So Jesus, as we close, he ties in some really amazing motivation for us to, to do this. It's, it's kind of tucked into verse 37. Listen, listen what he's saying there. He says, truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Okay, do you see what Jesus is talking about here? Do you see what the master is doing? This is crazy, because masters don't come home and start serving the servants. But what he's saying is, if the master comes home and he finds the servants doing what the servants are supposed to be doing, if they're living according to the tasks that are put forth by the master, this master will serve you. Our salvation, our relationship with God, our life with God is not about our service to Him, but it's about His extravagant gift to us. This is a master who has served you at the cost of his own life, and what he offers is extravagant because in verse 44, he says he's going to give you his possessions. And, and, and the, it says truly means like, I know this is really hard for you to believe, but this is what's going to happen. He's going to put you in charge of his possessions. And, and I'm, I'm not totally true, I'm totally sure what all of that entails, but the scripture says you're going to be a co heir with Jesus. It's not about like, hey, you're going to be an employee or, or, or you're going to be some kind of mid-level manager of Jesus' stuff. No, you're, you're his child. And, and, and a lot of times we can read this and we can be threatened and it would cause us, again, just to kind of feel real guilty and feel real bad about ourselves. And, and listen, we should allow this word to, to do its work on us and evaluate where we are in our life. Um, but the punishment went to Jesus. It talks about like those servants will be cut to pieces. That's what happened to Jesus. And because of that, we don't want to fear the arrival of the master because just as he served me in the past by dying for my sin and rebellion, he will serve me in the future by establishing me as a co-heir and a son. And when you get that reality, it should make us want to be generous. It should make us want to live awake to what God is doing in the world and what his purpose is and what his plan are in the world and not be lulled to sleep by passing fads and passing fame and temporal things that just always just break. I spent a good part of my day yesterday cleaning up my garage. I don't know if you ever do that, especially if you have kids and you just like all this stuff and you remember like, I remember when we bought this bike or we bought this thing and now it's like in a million pieces, it's just a wreck and that's what happens. But we're constantly lulled into sleep thinking, well, if I can just buy the next thing, or if I can just pay for the next experience, or if I can just spend on the next thing. And every time it gets us like that, we think it's going to do something that only eternal gifts can do, but, but we put all of our hope in these temporal things. But then when we come and we're faced with what our master has done for us on our behalf, and we're going to enter a time of communion, so the band's going to come up now, and we see what Jesus has done on our behalf. We see his extreme generosity towards us. It makes us want to stay expectant. It makes us want to stay awake to what he's doing in the world. It makes us want to stay faithful 
to the task of the master. And the more deeply we believe into the grace that we've been given, the more my entitlement, the more my consumerism will go down, and the more my gratitude and my generosity will go up. As we enter a time of communion, um, I want to just end. There's a story uh, of a man in the Scriptures, a man named Zacchaeus. It's kind of a funny name. If you've never heard of him, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which in that day, it meant that he took money from people in his community, and he actually extorted them because he would overcharge them in taking the tax, and he would kind of skim off the top. So he exploited people with less power for his own financial gain. And Zacchaeus was very wealthy, but nobody wanted to be around him, so he was isolated relationally because he was selfish financially. So one day Jesus comes to town, and Jesus is doing the miracles and doing all the things that people want to see him for, and everybody wants to see the Jesus show, and so the crowds all kind of press in, and Zacchaeus is extremely interested as well too. Um, but the scripture tells us Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And so uh, Zacchaeus had to climb up a tree so that he could see what Jesus was doing as he walked through the town. And then Jesus stops, and he kind of gets to the place where Zacchaeus is. And what does he do? Call him out, harass him. There he is. Everybody get him. No, it's an amazing moment. Jesus meets him, and he says, hey, I want to hang out with you at your house. Nobody, nobody wanted anything to do with Zacchaeus. They probably all hoped he'd like just fall out of the tree and die. But Jesus says, no, in, in a move of relational intimacy, in a, in a move of like crazy hospitality, Jesus says, I want to go to your house with you, spend time with you over a meal. I want to I want to be your friend. He doesn't bring shame. He doesn't bring judgment. He doesn't bring guilt. He comes with grace. He parts the crowd. And he walks up to Zacchaeus. He says, I want to go hang out with you. And the scripture, when it tells a story, it tells us that that encounter changed Zacchaeus' life. Because Jesus came to him and he's and he's coming to you even right now. And you might feel uh, some sort of shame or you might feel some sort of way, regret about your financial situation or that you have no time for anyone else. But the point is not to make you feel bad. It's not why Jesus comes. It's not why he brings us here. But in an encounter with God, it, it should leave us changed. And Zacchaeus here, he has this life-changing encounter with Jesus. And the scripture says that he paid back everyone that he wronged and he gave a significant portion of his income to the hurting and the poor in the city. Jesus didn't tell him to do that. Jesus didn't come to him saying, all right, listen, man, you've made a real mess out there. And if you want to get right with me, you need to make it right with all these people. Jesus doesn't give him a prerequisite to be okay with God. But the encounter with grace, the encounter with Jesus changed him. And it should change you and it should change me in the way that we think about our stuff and our resources and our time and our money and our talents and our ability and our passions. Because God is generous with us. He's given what? His only son so that we could have life with him. And when you are struck with that generosity, it frees you to be generous with others. When we are loved like that, we can love others. When we see that he is trustworthy, 
we can trust him and we can entrust what we've been given in the way that he says to use it best. Every week at communion, we celebrate this reality that Jesus Christ came and lived and died for you and for me. And why would he do that? Because you are his heart's treasure. Every other treasure in the world makes you die to purchase it. But Jesus is the only treasure that died to purchase you. And so some of you, you're, you're working yourself into the ground or you're spending yourself into crazy debt to try to purchase some kind of significance. But Jesus is the significant one who died to purchase you. And so when we come to this moment where we take the bread and we take the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus, we're captivated by the radical generosity of Jesus. And when you see him dying because you are the treasure of his heart, then and only then will he become your greatest treasure. And when you see that, you won't have to have money as your source of security or significance. It'll just be money. It'll just be stuff. And you'll see Jesus as everything that you want most in life, and you'll be free. If you want to be generous like Jesus was to you, it's not about sitting down and staring at your calculator, staring at your calendar, staring at your bank account. Stop and stare in wonder at the cross of Christ. And when you see how deeply you're loved, you can love like him. And when you see how much he gave, you're free to give. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to take those two elements, the bread and the cup, and we eat and we drink in remembrance and in celebration of a God who's been so generous to us and who has entrusted us with so much. And it is our joy to be about the master's work. So eat and drink and do that now. And then we always stand and sing um, because when you are loved like that, it makes you want to sing. So let's do that. <laughs>